Let's take the word of God and turn to Jonah chapter number one this morning. Jonah chapter number one. If you're visiting with us, we've been taking Jonah as as a whole. I don't recall, this is number four or five in, in the series so far. We've taken the book of Jonah as our task to work through them all four chapters. And I pray that it's been a blessing to you, and this morning we'll be as well. And we're going to take up a similar portion as last week, Jonah, or, or just historical narratives, meaning stories in the Bible, um, are somewhat different. Like instead of Philippians, going verse by verse and continuing with the text the next week, sometimes... In Jonah, we will take the same text a couple of weeks and just see a different line of thought. Um, Last week, uh, we looked at um, God's work in Jonah's life to restore him to a place of fellowship. We looked at this portion of the text. Um, But there are other players in this narrative. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the sailors, the mariners, um, the pagans, the heathen, um, those who are apart from God, and look at God's work. I'm in them. So if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of, out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We'll take up our reading this morning in verse number 5 and read through 16. Uh, we read these words. When, then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us, so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked, jo- they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Let's pray. Father, we come to you once again because you are our hope. Father, our hope in everything, both in life and death. Father, if anything up to this point has meant anything for eternity, it's because you will make it alive. You will accomplish the work. Father, every song that we sang, every every prayer that was prayed, Father, every word spoken one to another, our very attendance this morning, that we know externally means nothing, to some extent, unless our hearts are engaged. Father, some of the greatest enemies in the scriptures, some are those who are religiously um, meticulous, who honored you with their lips, but not with their hearts. Father, may that not be us this morning. May our hearts engage. May you give us a a, a hunger and a thirst after righteousness. Father, may the word go forth with power in our hearts to accomplish an eternal work. Father, may your son be exalted. May the power of the spirit reign in our hearts and lives. May we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. May your word accomplish that which you sent it forth, Father. And we are praying that it is to make sons and daughters of the most high God. Father, if not from only from birth that you may save them, Father, but also in life, that you may sanctify us and continue to make us more like Jesus Christ, Father. And progress our faith, strengthen, Father, our inner men and women this morning, and just make us ever more like your Son through the proclamation of the Word. 
Father, help me to be faithful in, in the declaration of it and help us all to be faithful, Father, in the receipt of it and that you may all get all the honor and all the glory and all the praise. Stay our minds, Father, and from the littlest to the greatest, from the least of us, Father, um, to the highest, and for your honor and for your glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. <clears throat> the greatest thing you'll ever do in your life is to think on God. To meditate upon Him, His character, His nature, His person, His work. And to spend your life doing it will be a life well spent. Yet at the same time, one of the most painful and tortuous things you'll ever do um, is to think on God. <laughs> um, we are finite creatures with a gap so great if it weren't for Christ. But even in Christ, um, to, to strive to think on God um, at the height that he's at, and as deep as you could go, um, is, is, is an impossible task, save the work of the Spirit. This is a weekly struggle for me, some days a daily struggle, as one sheep to another striving to communicate to you from the glorious realities that I don't really fully understand myself. Which kind of devolves into circular ramblings <laughs> as I seek more to strive to help you understand what I, I don't even myself. For example, the Trinity. I love the question and I hate it. <laughs> I mean, how do you explain to someone particularly an atheist and a skeptic, that God is three, yet he's one. I know the articulation. I know the creeds. I know what the confession states. I know the scripture. Yet at the same time, to reconcile that in our minds um, is seemingly an impossible task. And at some point, you have to recognize that there's only so far you can go. And as a man who delves deep into the ocean, he recognizes the glories of the investigation and the discovery Yet at the same time, he realized that there is a place that he can't go, that danger ensues. Thus, there's much of the chasms in the deep, the caves, in places that we will never go. I'm convinced. And the same is with theology. I mean, the hypostatic union. Is God, is Jesus Christ God or man? I don't know. You know I, mean, I mean, I know, but I don't. The answer is yes. Fully God, fully man. Um, but to strive to, to reconcile that in my mind... I have just yielded over to God. The same with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. I've come to realize that that too is somewhat of a mystery, isn't it? There used to be a time in my life where that was the pursuit. Two to three painful years. <laughs> um, one had to be true and the other false. I had to be able to reconcile the text of the scriptures I'm in my own mind. I had violated Deuteronomy 29, 29. And I had sought to delve deeper into those secret things than what probably I ought not to. Um, and I've yielded the reality that at some point, I don't need to know it all. I, can, I will dive as deep as I can go and I will rest in him where I am instead of wearying myself in the secret places. Yet at the same time, and at the same time, I refuse to rob God of what he's revealed. Um, for example, do men have free agency to act according to the will? The scripture says yes. At the same time, is God fully sovereign and active even in the most minute of creation? And the scriptures are clear. The answer is yes. If you, if, you, if, you, if you need more, Isaiah 45, that he determined the end from the beginning. That if a man even travels from the east to the west or the west to the east, a bird flies, it's because God determined it. That yes, we know Judas acted fully in accord with his own will. 
not coerced even one fraction of a percent by God, yet at the same time, when he sells our Lord for 30 pieces of silver, it was no accident. It happened according to the predetermined counsel of God. Acts chapters 3 and 4 uh, are clear. You say, how does all that work? I don't fully know, nor do I understand. I only know what the text reveals. And again, there was a time when it troubled me. I needed to know, but for now, the most part, all trouble is gone. And, I, and, um, and it has been replaced in large part by delight. It delights me to know that his plan will not be thwarted, that even when all external signs point towards defeat, that Christ is still on the throne, ruling and reigning, not only outside of those moments, but ruling in those moments, such that even when evil is at its worst, God is accomplishing His best, His work, His will, ruling in and through those moments. Thus we read things like Genesis uh, chapter 50, that they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph, if he had been living according to his eyes, should have given up about uh, a thousand times along the path, but he doesn't. His brothers planned, they schemed, they did all that they can do, yet at the same time, the text is clear that God did, God planned, God purposed to do this. Why? So that in order to save many people alive, Genesis 50 tells us. And that's more than just God watching in the heavens and waiting to intervene. No, they purposed, they intended, they planned, and God purposed, God intended, and God planned that He is working all things out for your good and for his glory. And when we come to the text this morning, we too find another example of this. That we could say in some, some fashion, according to our own mind and thinking, as we strive to reconcile it and yield it over to God, that Jonah meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That he deserted God, but God would not desert him. And even the very means of his rebellion that he would use as he strives to thwart God's plan and will is used as a means to accomplish it. That's the irony of it all. If you pay close attention to the text, you'll see that everything that Jonah strives to avoid, God accomplishes. Not apart from his actions, but even because of his actions, with his actions. That is the salvation of the pagans, non-Israelites, polytheists, worshipers of another God. He's striving everything in his being to avoid from that happening. And his very actions God uses to bring about that end. And that will be the focus of our time this morning. Examining what might, might be considered a subplot in the greater plot. A minor narrative in the greater narrative. As God extends, seeks to extend mercy to Nineveh, and Jonah strives with everything in himself to avoid that reality, we're going to see that God, on a micro scale, accomplishes that very reality as he saves these unbelieving sailors. And that's what I'm going to argue this morning. And there are some who will disagree, commentators, Christians, maybe you. Let's discuss it afterwards. I would love the conversation. But I'm convinced of my studies this far that what we see in this text is God gloriously using the events and even Jonah's rebellion, um, to reveal Jehovah God to these men in such a way that they would leave the ship converted, forever changed. And I think you'll see the fruit of that. So just as we saw somewhat of a roadmap last week of God restoring a departed prophet, today we'll see somewhat of the process of God bringing salvation to the lost. Pagans, heathen, polytheists converted. And, and I'm not going to give you a five-step method, but some principles by which God even uses, to, even to this day, um, to awaken sinners um, to their need of Christ. So number one, if you're taking notes, um, in this path, this road to conversion for these men upon this ship, number one, God awakens their conscience to their own misery and fate. Number two, they will hear and receive the word. Verse 9. Number three, they will seek the Lord in prayer. Verse 14. Number four, they will seek to please the Lord with their obedience. Verse 15. Number five, fruit will abound to their account. 
in, in accord with what we would consider to be conversion. That fruit will follow. So God will awaken their conscience, verse 5 and 10, to their misery and fate. God will, they will hear the word and receive it, verse 9. They will seek the Lord in prayer as a result of God's work in them, verse 14. They will seek to please the Lord with their obedience and there will be an abundant amount of fruit in their lives in accord with conversion. So let us look. Number one, God awakens their conscience to their own misery and fate. Verse number five. Then the mariners were afraid. Every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Maybe you've never considered it before, but just for a minute, um, I would love for you to use some little sanctified imagination, not putting into the text inherently what's not there, but at the same time, what it may have been for on that day that Jonah arrived from the perspective of the sailors. We're reading Jonah from Jonah's perspective, but for a moment, for today, I would love to read it from the sailors' perspective. Not only delve into Jonah's life, but to delve into these men's lives as they boarded that ship that day. That This was their daily trade. This is what put bread on the table. And if it's hard to think about, think about yourself, particularly men, women. What is a day like to you, or a, a day like in the life of work for you? Wake up, 6 a.m., get dressed, four, five, six days out of the week, working long hours to provide for your families. For the most part, it becomes mundane. Another day on the job. You'll wake up tomorrow, what will you expect? For many of you, it will be to simply punch the clock. Do your due diligence, eight to ten hours of work, go home, um, wash, rinse, repeat, right? And that's what these men expected. No doubt lifelong sailors, they know the seasons, maybe even able to predict the weather given their experience that they had, some utilizing gods and superstition to make the, the plan for um, the trip. They would load up the cargo. Um, they would make sure that there is sufficient uh, needs uh, upon board that they could live throughout the entire journey. They told their wives goodbye that morning. They gave their children their orders to obey their mama, and they fully expected for a round trip to be just like any other. Yet it would prove completely Otherwise, and you can imagine as they leave the ship and they kiss their wives and they embrace their children, I'm going to argue it's going to be altogether different. That at some point in the journey, just like at some point in all of our lives, something happens. In theirs, a storm arrived um, that is no doubt something that they had never seen before, nor could they prepare. Verse number five tells us that the mariners were afraid. Despite the experience of the seasoned sailors, um, no doubt having experience with, with many types of storms, um, this storm was of a, such a large effect that it was able to bring the most seasoned of sailors to their knees full of fear. There was a dread that overwhelmed their hearts accompanied by the worry of death. Fear, you know it all too well. It's that affection near to every one of us. It seems like it needs a little explanation. Um, yet at the same time, maybe it does overwhelmed with a sense of dread, such that all natural work would cease, the joking, the light-hearted demeanors gone of the sailors, the whole ship is filled with fear, every one of them. Everything that had seemed important to them in that moment um, seemed no longer of value at all. Now, the only thing that's going to be important to them is the preservation of their lives. And what began as an emotion in response to the storm quickly grips their mouths. It grips their hands. It grips their feet. Um, the text tells us that they began to call upon their gods. Every man, the text says. Um, so you can imagine. Just like you work with men like this. You work like women like this. Um, something happens. What happens? They lean upon um, that which they can trust in in this life. Surely they think one of them has a God that can help. 
So they begin to cry out to pray to their gods, the text says. That it, that it not only gripped their, their, their mouths, but it gripped their minds and their hands. They'd concluded that the storm was so much that if they had any chance, they needed to lighten the load. So they begin to throw all of their cargo overboard. The cargo being anything and everything, but definitely things that they needed, possibly even food, probably even food. And in their last-ditch effort to save their lives at some point before, during, after, or during all of it, you can see them in total despair. They fall to their knees, cry out to their God, God, have mercy on me. And one of them, in all of their pantheistic panic, one pastor says, they begin to cry out, and they, they look around, and they say, hey, where is that guy, that Israelite who was once with us? Like, you've cried out to your gods, I've cried out to my gods, there seems to be nothing that's helping, the storm continues to get worse, where's that guy? That guy's in the bottom of the boat, so the captain goes down to, he, to, to find Jonah, to wake him up, to arouse him out of his uh, deep, deep sleep, so that he can rise up as well and call upon his God. Maybe this guy has a God, and maybe that God can save us, and that's what the argument is. In verse number 6, call on your God, they say, perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. They are concerned with death. Fear has overwhelmed them such that they realize that this may be the last time that I kissed my wife. I may not see my children anymore. This may be the last boat ride. And all of their values begin to shift, begin to be flipped upon their head as the sea grows more and more and they, they grip everything that they can so that they may live that they will not perish. And what you'll see is, as you saw with this descent of Jonah, you're going to see this ascent in fear in the pagans. They're going to be afraid. They're going to be exceedingly afraid. And you're going to see this, this, this culmination, this, this um, um, building up of tension to where it leads to their conversion. And you may ask, what was God doing in all of that? Well, we know that God was bringing Jonah to his knees. Um, as a prophet of God in total um, unsubmission and rebellion against him, he is restoring that prophet, utilizing the storm. Yet like a double-edged sword, the, the salvation of, or the judgment against Jonah will lead to the salvation of these men. That God would use the natural fears of these men to awaken them to their own mortality as they face eternity. That God would use the storm to teach these men that all that they cared about in this life amounts to little when God comes to them and requires an account. That in the steep of their paganism, God would press upon their conscience the reality of life and death. And there it would be as if they're standing before the storm, they are standing before God. And He would use it to awaken their souls to the mortality of their own lives and the eternity that stands before them. And it would be indispensable in their conversions. That he would continue not only to show them, but he would awaken them to the futility of their gods. That he would show them the impotence of their created deities. He would show them their inability to save them. He doesn't bring them to directly to himself initially at the awakening of their souls in the storm. But he would give them time to say, hey, where are you at? This God and that God. Um, and in their paganism, they could have been judged in the moment, but, but he allows in patience and long-suffering for just a few moments to where they can see the reality of the futility of their own gods. He shows them that their idols are impotent and incapable. So to come to God, they would first have to come to the realization um, that they are mortal men, that eternity stands before them. And if they will be saved, it will be no other God than the true one triune God. First Thessalonians, Paul writes to Thessalonica and, says, and in some sense gives us that essence of salvation that they turn from idols and turn to the living God. That that's what you do when you come to Christ. That you, you, you don't just put Christ there upon the mantle with all of your other idolatry, with all of your other sufficiency. We are, we are by nature, even in America, polytheists. Boys and girls, that just means we serve many gods. We have a God for everything. We have a God to appease our, our comfort. We have a God for money. We have a God for this. We have a God for that. And in those moments in which we are in desperate need, you'll often find what you worship by what you run to and what you cry out for. And God is, is um, 
unmistakable that in those moments, there is only one God that can meet sufficiently all of your needs. So eventually they would cry out. That God would, they would cry out to the Lord in verse number 14. But before we hone in onto that, I want to ask one question. Why would they cry out to the Lord? Well, it may be argued that they're not crying out. And there are some commentators and Christians who argue that this isn't real at all. That actually they're just crying out to another God. They've not abandoned their idols. They've, it's, just, it's just polytheism at its best. And they're trying everything that they could. But I'm convinced um, that, 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 that it's just the opposite. The contrast is true. And in verse 14, they actually cry out to the Lord. Um, you say, how do you know that? Because of the word there that's used for the Lord multiple times. In your text, it's probably all capital letters, which means Yahweh. It means the covenant-keeping God. They're not just crying out to another God. They're crying out to the one true God. It is the God of Israel. It is Yahweh. It is that unique name of the covenant-keeping God that is distinct to them and to Israel alone. Yet now it's on the lips of the pagans. How is that? At some point in this boat ride, they abandon the ship of their gods and begin to seek the one true God. And you say, why in the world is that? Well, number two, because the word was sown and received. The word was sown and received. Very quickly, you might miss it, um, or you might think that it's insignificant. Maybe it is. But if these men are to be converted, they're not to be converted completely by a storm. While it is a means of awakening their consciences, bringing them to grips with the mortality, while it declares the glory of God... Every catastrophe known to man is not enough to save him. Salvation comes by grace through faith as revealed in the word. And we do at least find some nuggets to indicate that Jonah was at least faithful in the proclamation of the word to these men. And this is the most wonderful way. Um, this is the most wonderful reality. Um, that God speaks through a backslidden prophet and the billows of a great storm to bring to bear upon the consciences the true knowledge of God. From a man who doesn't even want to. And God is able to utilize that to the conversion of sinners. Even today, God may use a backslidden preacher, someone apart from fellowship, or a word even from an apostate. Um, God can utilize that. It's not the normal means, but He can do it. And He can utilize that to convert the soul of a sinner. Why? Because His truth He utilizes um, in a way to bring Him honor and glory. He does the work. Verse number 9, we see the word given. In his confession to them, after they ask him, who are you, where are you from, what nation are you a part of, he says these words. I am a Hebrew, verse 9, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And if that's not enough to be considered, note what he says in the next verse. At the end of it, he says, for the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because he had told them. But there is a wealth of knowledge of God in the boat. Why? Because no doubt, even within the text, but even outside the text, in that phrase, Jonah had communicated the reality of God, his fellowship with him, and the reality of breaking covenant with him to these people. What did he talk about? He talked about Yahweh. That's what the, the, the verse there literally says. I, I, he says, then the men were exceeded. Why have you done this? Verse 11, and they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm? But he goes on to say, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That he was Yahweh, the Lord, covenant-keeping God. That I am in a relationship with him. I've broken um, that reality and I've, I've ran from the presence of the Lord. Number two, that he's the God of heaven. That he's not only a God of man's creation. The other gods that they knew were their gods and they had made them with their own hands, but not this God. Not only that, but he's the God of earth. He's the creator, the sustainer, and the governor of life. And all of creation. That's what he says. He says, my God is the God who created the sea and all that was in it. The dry land. And I serve the God who created and sustained it all. Not only that, but he's judge. In verse number 12, he says, he said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode, to, to, uh, rode hard to return to the land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. That in God's dealings with them and in their dealings with God and in their dealings with Jonah and Jonah's dealings with them, um, they seem to have a moral compass. 
Why? Because as Jonah gives them the sentencing and says, if you want to appease God, cast me as a sacrifice into the sea, um, they realize that they actually are hesitant to do it. And they don't want to do it in the beginning. They don't want to do it at first. Um, but eventually they come to the reality that the storm's getting worse. Something must be done. And this is what it seems to please God. Yet at the same time, in the tension of that reality, um, they plead to God for Him not to lay that charge against them. They recognize as they appeal to the God of heaven, earth, and the Creator, they recognize that to cast such a man into the sea would actually kill him. That they had a moral compass and recognized that murder was wrong. And not only that it was wrong, but it was an offense to God. And that that offense they would be held accountable for if God did not forgive them. Thus they cry out to God as the judge of all the earth, that they are morally accountable to Him, and that He is just, that He is uncompromising, um, that He will carry out justice in accord with His will. And they learn that too as they cast Jonah into the sea, and the storm is calmed. They learn that God truly is just, and that He requires justice, that He doesn't just skirt over um, the sins of mankind, but that sin must be dealt with and that he too is a God of pardoning grace and pardoning mercy. Just as those sailors learned God's mercy, as Jonah was swallowed up in that watery grave, um, they learn of God. Number three, you see, that as they receive the word, they, they hear and receive the word. Number three, they seek the Lord in prayer. God has done such a work in their lives to awaken their dead consciences um, to the reality of their, their sin and their mortality and their eternity as the word goes forth and God's nature, character, work is placed, pressed upon that conscience. They are accountable to God that He's in the heavens, He's working in the earth, that He is just and His justice must be appeased. Yet at the same time, He is a God of pardoning grace and mercy. What do they do? They cry out to the Lord. Verse number 14. The text says, therefore they cried out to the Lord, we pray. We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. This cry out is a call. It's a, it literally means to be to call out, to utter a loud sound, to cry for a help. But this is what they did. They unabashedly, unashamedly call upon the covenant God of Israel for His mercy. The same God who set His love upon a people, entered into covenant relationship with them, manifest His unique love towards them, this God of Jonah, they cry out to. And again, they call upon Him by name. We beseech Thee, we pray to You, Yahweh. It's no longer a recitation of prayer to their gods. They're no longer praying like the heathen. Remember Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. When you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. They're not calling out Him on like the pagans anymore to coerce or to manipulate their God to bend to their will. No, this is as far as we can tell. The first time in their lives that they're engaging with the one true God. And how do they call upon Him? Yet in utter resignation and yielding of themselves to Him. Verse 14, You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They've submitted to God. They've yielded to His will. Now it's no longer about them accomplishing their will, utilizing their gods to do their purposes. Now it is them and their utter resignation to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for Him to do as He pleases. Thus they yield not only in their prayer, but in their desperate obedience. In their utter obedience. Number four, they seek to please the Lord with their obedience in their lives. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah. They pick him up. They throw him into the sea, and the sea ceases from its raging. And you can see the tension in their souls in verse 14. They desire to please the Lord. There is a desire there now to please God. But there is a conflict in their conscience. They know it's wrong to murder. They know they'll be accountable to God. But at the same time, they're convinced, as the lot was cast in Jonah's lap, 
that that was in some reality God's word to them and through the storm itself that this was what God desired. That He was communicating His will to them and there is this tension in their lives. A tension that maybe you understand as well. That in the conflict of your own conscience and in your inner men, oftentimes there are two things on the table and you struggle with how to proceed with the Lord and how to proceed in life. And thus there is this tension in the, the lives of these men and they struggle with how to proceed with the Lord. And ultimately they desire to please Him. One of the great hallmarks of God's people um, will not only be a prayerful life, a life in utter submission and yielding to God, but it will be a people who seek to please the Lord with their lives and their actions. It will indicate a humility of heart, a willingness to lay aside one's own desires and to serve another. And the pleasure of God is their utmost desire. This isn't to appease Jonah. This isn't so much to save their necks anymore. But they seek to please God. So what do they do? They obey Him insofar as they understand His will. And they cast Jonah into the sea. And this is no doubt fruit from the fear of God that He has wrought in them through His providence and His Word. So number five, we see further fruit that abounds in their lives in accord with their conversion. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and took vows. Verse 16 reveals to us um, some amazing things about the reality of these men's hearts. I mean, it's a unique verse in all of Scripture. There's a fancy word with it. I won't give it to you because I don't even know if I can pronounce it. But uh, this is the only place in Scripture that you'll actually find um, three, in the original, three times where the word is utilized twice. And what I mean by that is that if you were to literally translate this verse, um, you would read this. This is a Hebrew scholar. And the men feared a great fear of the Lord and sacrificed sacrifices to the Lord. And they vowed vows. That you see in the original this emphatic use of the same word two times to show the seriousness and the emphasis in their hearts and in their actions. That they had feared a great fear of the Lord. That God had, had produced in them not a, a slavish fear, but God had through His providence, through the storm, through His Word, cultivated in them now a character of fear that is indicative of those who believe alone. You remember the great promise that God gives in the Old Testament Scriptures as He promises a new covenant. In many other places He says, I will put fear in their hearts. And what you'll notice is not only Jonah's digression, again, down, 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 even into the belly of the whale, but you will notice their ascension in fear. That they had started out low in the face of the storm that they would perish. And there is this... this um, self-centered um, fear, this rational type of conscience that has um, logically determined that if this continues, I'm gone, I've got to do something with this. So they cry out to their gods, and as the tempest begins to um, grow more and more and more, it, the, the fear begins to rise until God uses it to actually cultivate in them and birth in them the true fear of God. Right, so verse number 5, you'll see the transition. And the mariners were afraid. Verse number 6, what were they afraid of? The end of the verse, so that we may not perish. Verse number 10, so the men were exceedingly afraid. They were greatly afraid. They were excelling in fear. Um, why? Because of the tempest. And something happens between verse number 10 and verse number 16 in the life of these men, in the life of this narrative. Then the men feared the Lord. They feared God. And not just Elohim, general term from God. They feared um, God in His character and nature. They feared Yahweh. They feared Him. Um, they feared the Lord. The object of His fear had changed. I mean, it's no longer the storm. Now it's Yahweh, the covenant 
keeping God. In the language of the Old Testament, um, this is true religion. They were exceedingly afraid now. Why? Because they feared with a reverent respect um, God Himself. In the language of John Brown, an old Puritan, they esteemed the smiles and the frowns of Yahweh greater than they esteemed the smiles and frowns of men. That God becomes to them who He is and who He ought to be such that they respond appropriately in paying homage and respect to their God. God says to His people, I will put fear in their hearts. And what we see in these people is fear in their hearts. It's true worship. It's followed by offering of sacrifices. They sacrifice sacrifices, the text says. When the fear of God is implanted in the heart, particularly in the Old Testament people, true religion existed not only in the soul but outside of it in the manifestation of a life of obedience and love in the sacrifice of animals. Um, now you can ask the question, where in the world these animals come from? They've already thrown it all overboard. I have no idea. I don't know what they used. I don't know where they got it from. I don't know what they saved. Um, but what you find is that, that this is a yielding up to God. Something that cost them something. And it's more than just a deathbed conversion. It's more than just in a foxhole. Um, they, they, they come to the reality that God is true. And they make commitments to Him, not before. You'll find in um, deathbed conversions and foxhole conversions, what you'll find oftentimes are these commitments that men make to God. God, do this and I'll do this. And after it's all settled and the storm is done, you find no conversion at all. You don't find that in these men. You find in these men a gratitude of hearts um, post-storm of a commitment that they've made to Him. They vowed vows. They gave sacrifices. Why? Because they feared the Lord with true fear. In Old, in Old Testament, Old Covenant language, to vow vows um, was a language of covenant relationship. That in vows, just like in marriage, we would say, I will, you will. I do, you do. If not... I, if so, I, blessing and cursing. It is in some sense that they were covenanting with God, as God covenants with them. They were vowing allegiance to Him as, as He avowed allegiance to them, to serve and to honor Him. Psalm 116, 12, What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in, de in the death of and it is the death of the saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. Now in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, I praise the Lord. That these vows were not a vow to, to, to earn any stature with God. That these were the outpouring of a thankful and a worshipful heart. That God had accomplished such a work in these men's lives. How? By the awakening of their souls to their mortality and eternity. Bringing before them in word and in providence the very face of of God and that would take such root in their hearts and lives that they would call out for deliverance to the Lord they would call upon the one true God why because he's cultivated in them the fear of God a reverent respect for him that would culminate post storm in a life of allegiance covenanting with the, the covenantal God that this is salvation this too is what God accomplishes in us today I love what the commentator Hugh Martin says, quote, Thus did these men, they awoke to know the living and the true God. They prayed to Him, they appealed to Him, the storm clearly saw was in His hand. The reason for the storm they saw in His heart. And that reason they saw as clearly as they saw the storm. He goes on to say His hand, that, his hand they saw was almighty. His heart they saw was righteous. In brief time, they learned not a little of the true and living God. They felt His anger. They even became executioners of His wrath. They emphatically justified their deed as being constrained. This was a solemn initiation, he says, into the knowledge of His character. He goes on to say, now their guest, their passenger's gone. The sea is closed over him, and the sea has ceased from a raging. If they doubted that a living God was moving the storm by the power of His hand and according to the purpose of His heart, they, no, they can now at least doubt no more. 
The sudden appearing of the tempest spoke of his wrath. Now the silencing of the tempest tells its own tale. They fear God in the calm more than in the tempest. Or they fear God now in the calm more than they, than they feared him in the tempest. Under no stress of weather, no strain of terror, they vow not an extorted mercenary vow, but a free voluntary dedication of themselves to the Lord. One would fain say these men were converted to the God of Israel. And I love that phrase. They fear God in the calm more than in the tempest. And now under no stress of weather, no strain of terror, they vow not an extorted mercenary vow, but a free voluntary dedication of themselves to the Lord. And what we see within the life of these sailors, I am convinced, is the work of God. It is the work of God to awaken their souls to their misery and to their faith. It is a presentation of the true character, person, and work of God, not only in the storm, but even in Jonah's confession and profession of his disobedience. There they love of the covenant, they learn of the covenantal nature of God. Thus, they in their desperation, they abandon all of their um, deities and they seek the one true God as as representative in their humble prayer. They seek to please Him with their obedience. And in the tension of their conscience, they yield to His pleasure by casting Jonah into the sea. And they learn the mercy of God and the justice of God as that sacrifice of obedience and the sacrifice of Jonah's life um, yields the calm of the storm. And fruit continues post-conversion to... Um, flow from their lives in accord with the work of God. And they, thus they, they fear the Lord continually. They vow vows. They keep covenant with God and they sacrifice to Him thus with their lives. And that is the story. That is the narrative. And I don't think that it's far-fetched as we looked um, weeks ago into the life of Jonah. We learn that this prophet is unique and that the message is not like the other prophets. It's actually carried in the narrative that Jonah is the message. They were to look into his life and learn from his attitudes, his actions, and his, and his story. What is to be taken away from the prophet um, Jonah? And thus, I would give you just a few lines of application. Number one, number one. This should stir our hearts for the lost. When you read this text, you knew we were going to get there at some point. Um, that what this book should do and what God's activity through Jonah in the life of these sailors, but also one day in the life of Nineveh, should do no less than stirring our hearts for the lost. And I believe that this is ultimately the practical purpose of the book. Why in the world would God preserve the book of Jonah to be read among God's people except for the purpose of showing them God, but practically that God may stir their hearts for the Gentiles? Right? That at the same time that these men are on this boat casting aside their gods, what's happening back in Israel? The prophets back in Israel are preaching a message of repentance. Why? Because Israel is seeking after foreign gods. That the very gods that, that these pagan sailors are casting aside, now Israel is gathering to themselves. And what a, what a message it would have been that as Jonah is recorded, if like the epistles that were circulated among the churches, imagine as Jonah is taken back, and read among Israel what the response should have been and what the response would have been. They would have been like Jonah, mortified. They would have been like Jonah. You see, Jonah is not far from Israel in spirit, and Israel is not far from, from Jonah. That Jonah in some way may very well be a type of the temperament that Israel had in those days. That they had a superiority complex. 
that they had a, 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 an, they had a belief about themselves that they were the apple of God's eye and that God should not and would not give favor to the pagans. And yet God does. They would have probably um, attributed it, much like the Pharisees of Israel did in their day, that surely this is a work of Satan. That God would not do this. That it would be God's prophetic message to the people of God to call them to repentance as He showed great grace and mercy to a people who were not His people. A people who had never walked in the temple. A people who had never had the law of Moses. A people who had never heard the prophets. A people who had no recorded word and with a simple message and a backslidden prophet with a meager message, God gloriously saves them. And on the other hand, you have, like us, an abundance of light, the presence of God, the witness of miracles, the prophets and the fathers, and yet they won't repent. Right? And now do you understand the great exhortation, warning, and condemnation of our Lord in Matthew 12 when He says to the nation of Israel that if what was done among you was done among Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. That, that the reason that Jonah is given, preserved to the people of God, is that it may incite in them a conviction in their heart, of, that, that it may draw them to repentance, that they may come back to the true and the living God, and they may have a heart for the nations for whom Christ died. That as God cast the lot in Jonah's life for his sin, God with the book of Jonah is casting the lot in the nation of Israel's life for theirs. And it very well may be that God 3,000 years later is casting the lot in our laps because of our lack, our, our indifference and apathy to the nation. That one of the things that God desires above all, among God's people, I'm convinced, is an evangelistic spirit, spirit that grows out of a true covenantal knowledge and relationship with God. You know, there's a lot of things throughout the life of this church that I've wished we had. And there's a lot of things that I've said, take it or leave it. Some things that I would have liked to have done and, and didn't. And at the same time, it's irrelevant. And yet there are those things in the life of every church which are indispensable. And one of those things that are indispensable are the evangelistic spirit of the people of God. And the burden that God places upon those people for those whom are outside the church. And I'm convinced that as we move forward without it, that we will not be productive. Um, that you don't see a different type of church in the New Testament. You read the book of Acts and what you find is you find that when God saves a people and God is active in a people, that the Spirit draws those people um, to an evangelistic uh, ministry to those that are around them and ultimately to the earth. To all the nations. That Jesus Christ dies. Thus I'm convinced that the book of Jonah. For the new covenant people of God even today. Is to be used as a means to draw us to the over. To the. To the. To draw our minds to the largeness of God's heart in extending mercy to the nations and even to convict our own hearts into our own apathy and our indifference for whatever reason. Maybe it's not a superiority complex today. Maybe it's a whole host of other excuses and that God um, would desire for His people to cast those excuses aside and to, and to share in God's heart for the lost. That God has a large heart for the nations. And not only does he has a large heart for the nations, but that he goes to great lengths to bring to those nations the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you see here in the book of Jonah. God goes to great lengths to take the gospel 
by, even by Jonah's rebellion to these pagan mariners. God goes to great lengths to take the gospel and the, and the word of God to Nineveh even crosses barriers and boundaries and borders, and that we too, as the people of God, if we are to be godly and like Him and Christ-like, should go to great lengths to carry the gospel to our neighbor. This is not a call to sell everything that you have, take up your cross, follow Jesus in missions. I understand that some people are called for that. I'm not saying that all of us are uniquely for that. But I am saying that when God's character, His nature, His spirit is among us, we have, a, we have a zeal for the lost. And that will be carried out in our daily lives in whatever capacity and context God has given us. That you should be mothers and fathers, gospel-driven in your schooling. That as you raise your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, you are to disciple and train them for the purpose of knowing God. Whatever you do, it is that they may know Him. That men, when you go to work, it's not to just be another mundane job. You are there for a purpose to live out as Christ lives through you and to carry that message to all that are there in some capacity. I'm not saying you go and you just give up your job and you rebel against your, your, your employer, but at some point, you must ask the question, why has God placed me here? Why am I where I am? And at least one of those reasons, if not the ultimate reason, is that His name may be known not only through your word, but also through your life, that it may stir in those people that your life, your His word through you, and your display of the character and nature of God may bring before them an awareness. It may, God may use it to awaken their souls to their misery and fate. And that the word that you have given, he may enliven in their souls to cause them in the midst of the storms of their life to cry out to God to cast aside all of their pagans because of the sufficiency of Christ that they see and hear in you that they may know the the, the living and the true God. I am convinced that Jonah is given to us to stir our hearts for the lost. That it may cause us to pursue those that are outside the church that Jesus Christ has died for, that we may be the means by which goes and brings them into the flock of God. Therefore, let it stir our hearts this morning that God has a large heart for the world, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And let us, as God does, go to great lengths in our lives to bring the message of the gospel um, to our family, to our friends, to our loved ones. And to our children. I think that's the primary application. Number two. And these will come rapid fire quickly. I hope that you're encouraged and comforted this morning. That God's will will never be thwarted. In the moment when all of the signs point to failure. God will not fail. The enemy does not win. God accomplishes his purposes. Number three. Um, this would just be a caution of warning. Because God has extended grace through Jonah's disobedience, this does not mean that Jonah's disobedience is justified. You can look at it Romans chapter 6 type of stuff, right? Um, Paul is just expounding upon grace after grace, and he argues that because sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. Um, So so Paul knows the objection from the heretics, and he says, well, we'll sin all the more that we can abound. So that grace abounds. Paul says, God forbid. No, 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 no. That just because God uses... Jonah's disobedience to convert pagan sailors doesn't give you a right um, to enter into sin willingly that God may give more grace. All right? That you are responsible for God's revealed will to fulfill it and to be a positive instrument in, in, God's, in, in God's plan in this life. And if, God desire, and if God determines to utilize you, even in your disobedience, it's His prerogative, not yours. That you need to know number uh, three or number four. That your sin matters in the context of God's people. I think you can't get away from chapter 1 without realizing that that your sin and your disobedience is not isolated. That you go to uh, Joshua chapter number 7, you go to New Covenant, Acts chapter number 5, and what you find is that in the context of God's people, sin affects others. Right? That Jonah's sin brought this reality upon the doorsteps of other men. That Achan's sin and Ai caused them to lose the battle. And that Ananias and Sapphira's sin, as isolated as it was and seemingly individual as all of them were, there is clarity in the text of Scripture that your sin is not isolated and alone. 
That brothers and sisters, my sin as your pastor, that your sin as a member, can be hidden within your conscience, but it's not hidden from the face of God. And it may be hidden from the members, but it affects them all the more. That, that the power of God can be restrained within the context of a nation or a people and because of our sin. Thus, this should exhort and propel us not only to be right with God for His sake, but also for the sake of your fellow church members and for the sake of the world. That if we are going to be stirred to the nations, to reach the world with the gospel, every nation, tribe, and tongue, then we must keep short accounts with God. We must be in fellowship with Him. We must be casting aside and mortifying all the deeds of the flesh and pursuing together Christ with and for one another. That sin is grievous to our Lord. And that if we are to reach the nations, it must be done on holy ground. It must be that place in which we take our shoes off because God is present among us and goes with us. May it be that in our evangelistic efforts at the abortion clinic or even out or in our daily and individual lives have, have, have fallen upon fallow and hardened ground because of the unrestrained sin in our lives. If so, let us repent. May God stir our hearts to fellowship with Him. May we re restore that warm nature and character and relationship with God that the power of God may go with us that, 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 that the lost may be saved. Have you ever asked that question? I ask myself all the time, God, why are you not saving? And what we can do as reformed evangelicals and what we can do as, as 21st century um, cynicals is we can just say the world's going deeper and deeper into sin. Look at it. They're not going to come. Yet I read the scriptures and I don't read that. I read that Jesus Christ has, has a people out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. I read that the Spirit of God convicts of righteousness, sin, and judgment. I read that there are people out there in Corinth as well as in the, the Tri-Cities. I deduce that there are people out there for whom Christ died. And why will He not save? It's not because His hand is shortened. Maybe it's because the church is restrained because of the sin that we covet. Let us. Return to holy ground. Let us see our sin as grave as God does. And let us go forth with full confidence that Jesus Christ, the God of heaven and earth, by the power of His Spirit, is able to accomplish. And I trust that God will save. Why? Because God does save. And the same thing that He accomplished in you, He can accomplish in another. That yes, He can do it in spite and because of our sin, but the, but the normal use of means and resources that God uses. Um, is God's people, the church, going into the world, preaching the gospel. And there's always more, uh, more application that we can make. But I trust that that will be sufficient. Um, may God stir our hearts for the lost. May God um, use the book of Jonah to show us um, His desire to reach the nations. His ability to awaken the souls of men. May He bring to light to bear our own sin and disobedience as grave as it is that we might return to God and reach Nineveh for Christ. By Nineveh, I mean your family, your friends, the world. May God awaken our souls unto these realities. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you and we praise you for what you accomplish, Father, in and through your people. Lord, we need you. I need you. Father, I need you to do something. Not only in my life, but in the life of this church. Father, to be honest with you, you know my heart. And you know what we need. Father, you know that the last hour has been a lot of labor. Not only in my giving, but also in the hearing. It's been difficult probably for these little ones. It's been difficult for the people. Father, there's been a struggle in my own heart um, to not preach in the flesh. Anxiety overwhelms me. 
Father, and maybe apathy and indifference in the congregation. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Father, of, of the hearts and the minds of the people. Father, but I am of my own heart. And I know that I need a work, Father, of God, even in it. Not only now, but on a daily basis. Father, I need the fellowship of the covenant-keeping God. Father, I find a kindred spirit seemingly in my own heart with Jonah more days than I do others. Father, there's a struggle in my own spirit um, and in my flesh. And, Father, I need your Son to be exalted in my own heart and thinking, in my own mind, in my own strength, Father, um, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and in the, in, the, in, the, in the likeness of his sufferings. Father, we need you to accomplish this because we can't. Father, we look at the world and we look in ourselves, Father, and we see such apathy and indifference maybe in my own heart. I see a thousand excuses, Father. Um, while I'm stirred in my emotions, I find a thousand excuses as to why not to engage the culture, Father, not to engage the lost, why not to give the gospel. Father, I pray that you would give me no excuse. Father, that you would empower and enliven each and every one of us in this congregation, Father, um, to be so full of the knowledge of Christ and so full of the fellowship of the Spirit, Father, that you would give us the confidence um, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. Um, to take it, Father, to the ends of the earth, to give it to our co-workers, our family, our friends, and our little ones. And give us, Father, the confidence to believe that you are more than able um, to accomplish that which you sent it forth. And in part, that will be the salvation of the lost, Father. Um, let us know that if you're able to save the pagans with a, with a meager message, you too are able, to Father, to save to the uttermost all those that will hear your message. So, Father, give us confidence as we go forward. Father, give us a, a, a knowledge of our own sin. Father, convict us in our own hearts. Keep us, Father, as with short accounts with the Savior. Father, with Jesus Christ the righteous. Um, give us, Father, strength and aid as we go forth. It seems like an impossible task, and we know that without you it is. That outside of Christ we can do nothing. So, Father, may Christ go with us. May his power be present. And may you, Father, grow this congregation, not, not numerically, but spiritually, in the faithfulness wherewith you have caused. And may fruit abound to our accounts, because fear has been wrought in us for the Lord. And that, Father, through our covenantal vows to you, out of a thankfulness of heart, we're willing to take it, Father, to the ends of the earth. And if you will give the increase, then we will say amen. And if not, Father, we will still be faithful and go. Because we know that you are with us. And Father, if you're not with us, um, we pray that you will not allow us to go. But Father, if you are, take us anywhere. Take us everywhere. That your name may be known throughout all the earth. Give us the spirit, not only as an individual and a family, but give the spirit as a church. May Jonah stand, Father, as a rebuke to us today, um, for those who won't. And may Jonah stand as an encouragement, Father, for us today, for those who do. So, Father, like a double-edged sword, go, discerning even the very intents and thoughts of our heart, and do with your word what you will. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing to finish the sermon. Number 301, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain, number 301.